If you'll please take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 3. We return to our journey with Jesus through the book of Mark. And so far, Mark, we've discovered that Jesus' identity as the Christ, the Son of God, was announced by men like John the Baptist, affirmed by God the Father and God the Spirit at His baptism, and attacked by Satan in the wilderness. We've seen how Jesus' ministry centered around His preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and calling people to repentance. And then He demonstrated His power and authority through amazing miracles, healing the sick, casting demons out. Even demons obey His commands. And so the crowds grew to love Jesus and Jesus Loved the crowds. And this only made the religious establishment and cultural elites hate Jesus even more. I mean, Jesus challenged their traditions. He called them out for hypocrisy. And then He associated with who they considered the worst of the worst in society. And so early in Jesus' ministry, in fact, in, in, in Mark 3, verse 6, right here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, He's already a marked man. The Pharisees are plotting to kill Him. His days were numbered. But if his time was limited, how could Jesus ensure that his good news message would still be preached to as many people as possible? If he was destined to die, how would his mission continue? Well, we saw back in chapter 1 that he's already beginning to assemble this team of disciples and now it's time to expand their ranks. Jesus specifically chose men that He could teach and test and transfer His power and authority to them so they could continue to preach and make disciples for the kingdom. So when we last saw Jesus three Sundays ago, before Easter, before Palm Sunday, He was being confronted, as He often was, by these Jewish religious leaders, and they were confronting Him over the fact that Jesus and His disciples weren't fasting. I mean, the Pharisees and their disciples fasted. Even John the Baptist and his disciples fasted. Jesus, why don't you and your disciples fast? And if you remember, Jesus answered them with two analogies. One about sewing new cloth onto old and putting new wine into old wineskins. And basically, Jesus said it's foolish to do either because if you sew a new unshrunk cloth onto an old, worn-out garment that's shrunk in the wash many times... Uh, and if, if I do the wash, things tend to shrink a lot. I, I never can seem to get that right. If you do that, then it, it will, that new cloth will shrink and it will tear the old. So Jesus said you don't do that. And similarly, he said you don't put new wine into old wineskins. Now, why is that? Well, a wineskin was a, a leather bag, basically, made out of animal hide. And when you put the wine in it, it still would ferment. And as it would ferment in that wineskin, it would produce gases and it would expand. And so a new wineskin is still flexible. It would expand with the wine. But an old wineskin, that leather, and maybe you've seen leather that kind of gets hard, it gets a little stiff, it's inflexible. So you put that new wine into that old wineskin and as it continued to ferment, what would happen? It would burst that wineskin and all that new wine would be wasted on the ground. Jesus said, no, that's not what you do. You put new wine into new wineskins. Well, Jesus' point is that the Old Covenant, the rituals, the cleanliness rules, the Mosaic Law, the sacrifices, the feasts and festivals, those things were like 
stiff, inflexible, outdated wineskins. They had served their purpose. Their time is done. Jesus came to do what Isaiah prophesied. Jesus came to do a new thing. And that new thing Jesus came to do would need new wineskins. So today we're going to look at that. We're going to discover the newness that Jesus brought. And if we're to receive the new things of God, we need new wineskins. And by that I mean we need new ways of being and doing and relating to each other in Christ. In these next few short stories of Mark's gospel, we discover that Jesus came to initiate three new realities in which His people are to live, love, and serve. These are the new wineskins that we need to be the people of God. And the first one we see is that Jesus came to bring a new covenant community in which we can live. A new covenant community. And we start with Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to them those He wanted. And they came to Him. And He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with Him and that He might send them out to preach. That's what the word apostle means. One who is sent out with authority. And so He's going to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve He appointed. Simon, to whom He gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. So I'll say sons of thunder. That's a little bit easier to say. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So here we see Jesus' band of not-so-merry men. Uh, They were a motley crew, to say the least. On the surface, they left much to be desired. In fact, as you get to know them through the Gospels, you kind of start to wonder, did Jesus make a mistake here? I mean, and I think sometimes Jesus might have even thought that from time to time. Uh, What did Jesus see in these men that he called them? One preacher I read said that they were modest modest of means, limited in schooling, and obscure in identity. Not exactly an all-star team, is it? But they were quite diverse. In this group of twelve, you have four fishermen, a hot-headed zealot, a would-be trader, and a tax collector. So they were definitely diverse. They weren't your typical, well-educated, culturally sensitive, nice and polite Jewish boys that other rabbis would seek out to be disciples. No, that wasn't them. Jesus assembled the least likely group of students any rabbi would ever want. See, Jesus saw something in them that no one else saw. They couldn't even see it in themselves. Jesus didn't care about their accomplishments, what they had done, because Jesus saw in them potential, what they would someday do. Jesus didn't care so much about who they were, because He knew who they would become in Him. And already in this passage, in these few short verses where we're introduced to most of these men, we see the personality of the group emerge as well as the unique relationship Jesus had with them. He gave three of them nicknames. Simon, he called Rocky. Peter means the rock. He's he's Rocky. He named James and John the sons of thunder. Boy, doesn't that sound impressive. That's because they always argued and fussed and fought and had short tempers. Not really a compliment. These two sets of fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, these two sets of brothers, 
uh, they kind of became the inner circle of Jesus. Think of them as the executive committee of the twelve. And so we see them listed together here first. And here we see Jesus' plan for these men. Why did he call them? What was it he was going to do with them? How would these twelve men initiate this new covenant community of which we are a part today? Well, obviously, let's start with the fact there are 12 of them. It's a symbolic, right? Jesus is the new Moses. Come to establish a new covenant with, his, with God's people. You know, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew and Luke is like the giving of the law, the giving of the Ten Commandments on, on, on Sinai. And so here, Jesus naturally calls 12 men to follow him, indicative of the 12 tribes of Israel. Just as God entered into a covenant relationship with Israel at Sinai, God creates a new covenant for all who would follow Jesus on Calvary. Even at the Last Supper, Jesus took the cup and said, This is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many. One of the predominant themes in the book of Hebrews is this comparison between the old covenant of Moses and this new Christ-centered covenant. In fact, Hebrews 8.13 says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old, old wineskins, is ready to vanish away. Listen, every follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian today, you are a member of this very same covenant community. The community that began right here, on this mountain as Jesus called these twelve to follow Him so He could appoint them as apostles and send them out to continue His work to preach the gospel and to make disciples. You and I are inheritors of this. We're part of this. Our story begins here. And, And even beyond this, even before this, because God has always been at work saving not just individual people but saving a community For himself. You think about Abraham. When God called Abraham, it was for what purpose? It was so he could make him a father of a nation. A nation through whom God would bless all the families of the earth. God elevated Joseph and brought him up to a place where he could deliver all of his brothers and his father Jacob and bring that family out of the plague of famine and establish them in Egypt. And then 400 years later, God calls Moses to go and to deliver His people, the nation of Israel, from slavery in Egypt. And here Jesus comes, not just to die for you and for me, not just to save us as individuals, but as Paul notes in Ephesians 5, Christ gave Himself for His church. He died for the church. He came to save sinners. So we can become sons and daughters of God together. Whereas Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, he uses this interesting analogy. He says, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. It's been said it doesn't matter where you live around the world, what your ethnicity, what your background, We were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. 
Now, Peter uses a different analogy. Rather than parts in a body, he says we're like stones in a building. He says in 1 Peter 2, 5, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are right now a part of this covenant community. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. When you are born again, you're not born as an orphan. You're born into a family. We're not like some weird assemblage of body parts in glass jars in a laboratory somewhere. We're members of a body that's living and breathing and vibrant and doing something. God didn't save us so we could be bricks laying out in a brickyard. He built us together into a spiritual house. You can't follow Jesus Christ on your own. You can only follow Jesus in community with other followers. You're not alone on this path walking with Jesus. You can't accept Christ and reject His bride. It's a package deal. And sadly, that core doctrine is lacking among too many Christians today. Just uh, the last week or so, the Pew Research Center released a very shocking report that for the first time in history, there are more Americans who are not a member of a religious group. Now, they include church, synagogue, mosque, all of that. But there are more Americans today, not a member of a church, we'll just leave it at that for for the moment, than are. You think about that. If you're a member of a church, you're now in the minority in this country. Now that should disturb us. Not only because it's indicative of where we are as a country, it is, but what it foretells about where our country is going. And it's disturbing. As Christians we should take more seriously than ever the admonition in Hebrews 10, especially as we're coming out of COVID, when so many of us, for for health reasons, legitimate health reasons, have, have been relegated to worshiping from home. We need more than ever to take up these two verses from Hebrews and commit them to heart. Do not, he says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We must be more faithful than we've ever been in our lives to the bride of Christ. It is essential for us, for our families, for this nation, that we be faithful and committed in our attendance in our involvement, in our service, in our praying, and in our giving. We need to teach and show our children that being a vibrant part of a vibrant church is not just a convenience, it's a priority. The church is the covenant community that Jesus shed His blood to establish. And like the twelve, Jesus calls each of us to walk with Him and to serve Him as His unique and treasured possession. We are a kingdom of priests who He sends out to shine the light, to be a beacon of truth in a world that's darkened by the lies of Satan. We need to get out of the salt shaker and be salt in this world to season a world that's bland and lifeless with the grace of God. And guess what? There's no plan B. God has no plan B. You and I are it. 
We are the way that He has chosen. And you may think, well, you know, it's kind of like Jesus choosing the twelve. What's He thinking? We are what He has chosen to carry this good news and to transform this world. It's through you and it's through me. For the church to be a new covenant community means we must answer that call to serve and proclaim the gospel and make disciples. But listen, we don't just need the church to be a base of operations for us to fulfill the Great Commission. We do. But we also need, we need the church to be a place of refuge, of rest, of relationships. And so Jesus next demonstrates that He not only created the church to be a covenant community in which we live, but a new family of faith to love. He gave us a new faith family to love. We're going to read verses 20 and 21 and then skip down to 31. We'll come back and get the others in a minute. So Jesus has called the twelve and it says that Jesus entered a house. You know, maybe this is uh, Peter's house. They're probably back in Capernaum. So they're back in Peter's house, the house the crowd knows well. They know to go there to hear Jesus teach and to to receive miraculous healings from him. And, and, And in fact, this day the crowd is so demanding in their needs, it says that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. They couldn't get a break to to take a rest, to get a drink, to to have a bite to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Now, I'll stop right there for just a minute and explain this, this part, because the word family that the NIV uses, and how many of your translations say family right there? Okay, several do. The, the Greek word used there is not the typical Greek word for family. I think a better translation of that word is associates. The, the literal reading of that word is uh, the people around Jesus or Jesus' own people. That's, that's what that word actually references here. And, and they, they look at Jesus and they think he's out of his mind. This makes me think of Thomas Edison. You know, Thomas Edison was a brilliant man. And he would often go hours and days without sleep, without food. And his family and friends would get worried about him, that he was going to collapse for his lack of sleep and sustenance. But, but that never happened. He, he was one of those rare individuals, those genius minds, that are so caught up and passionate in their work. They're waiting for this aha moment of discovery that everything else takes back seat. That's what Jesus is doing. He's not out of his mind. No, Jesus is fully within himself. Jesus is experiencing an aha moment as he is seeing his years of preparation and planning come to fruition as he's preaching the gospel and healing people and transforming hearts. He's not in danger of exhaustion or malnutrition. He's not mad. He has food they're not aware of. You see, man does not live on bread alone. He is being nourished and sustained by the very work that he is doing. And so these associates, these people around him, and and that could be as broad and general as saying, you know, uh, fellow Jews or Galileans, or it could be something specific. It could mean the people in Capernaum. It could mean the neighbors around this house. It could refer to his supporters who weren't necessarily a part of the twelve. You know, there was the twelve, but then there were other men and women who supported Jesus and, and, and believed in his ministry and followed him. Maybe that's who it refers to. Either way, when you take verse 21 and include verses 31 and 35 with it, 
we see that Jesus didn't allow his own people, his friends and neighbors, nor his family, his mother and brothers, to take priority over the new family that he is forming. So let's look at verses 31 through 35. This is what Ben was referencing in his children's sermon. Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. So the crowd is so great around the house, even Mary and James and Jesus' other brothers can't get in to see him. And so they have to send word to him. And so to the people around him, now notice this, they don't hear Jesus say this. Jesus doesn't say this to his mom. He'd get in trouble if he did, probably. Jesus says this to the people in the house. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? And he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Throughout Mark's gospel, he points out those who believed that they could claim, lay claim to Jesus and control him. We see it with the crowd. Oh, the crowd just wanted Jesus to perform miracles. He was just like a, a heavenly slot machine, you know, that out would come miracles and we just want more miracles. And, and they were in a way kind of addicted to that. The disciples had their own agenda. They, they had these grand visions of Jesus overthrowing Rome and ruling on the earth and they were his right-hand men. And so they were prompting him to do what the crowd wanted him to do. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they just wanted Jesus to toe the party line and play nice. And the demons, even the demons, were trying to divulge the true nature of his identity ahead of the timetable that Jesus had in mind. And so throughout Mark, we see Jesus pushing back on all these outside forces. He sneaks off to rest and pray and escapes from the crowd. He corrects the disciples about the nature of his mission. He calls out the religious leaders for their hypocrisy and boldly refocuses the Old Testament law to point to Him. He even commands the demons to be quiet. And so when Jesus' mother and brothers come to see Him, Jesus takes this as an opportunity to teach another important principle about the kingdom of God, namely this, that to be a follower of Jesus is to be a part of a new kind of family on the earth. A family not born of blood or law, but by faith and spirit. As Paul would later describe in Galatians, we are of the household of faith. God is our Father. Christ is our high and holy brother. And we together are each other's brothers and sisters. On the surface, it can seem like Jesus maybe is being a little dismissive, if not disloyal or disrespectful to his family, but he's not. And when we look in the broader context, we realize that Jesus is responding appropriately to the circumstances around him. As we're going to see in just a moment, you've got these two encounters with Jesus' neighbors and friends and his family. And, and in these two encounters, in the middle of that, he's confronted by the Pharisees, who with malicious intent basically accuse him of being on Satan's side. So surrounding that moment of blasphemy, that, that moment of hateful slander, are these two episodes where Jesus' friends and neighbors and family, with the best of intentions, are also trying to divert him from his mission. They're trying to get him to stop doing what he's doing. So strange as it seems, both Jesus' family and friends and his enemies are aiming for the same result to stifle his ministry of servanthood and preaching. 
There's a stark warning for us today in this story. There's no doubt we live in a society that is increasingly anti-family. It's hard to believe that, that we live in a country where the, the traditional, natural, biblical meaning of the family is being maligned. It's being castigated. And for that reason, we rightly see an increasing focus among Christians to be pro-family. And I'm, and I'm not knocking that. I agree with that. But let's not make the mistake of elevating the sacredness of our biological, natural, nuclear families above the eternal significance and equally sacred spiritual family, our family of faith. We should protect the bond between husband and wife, parent and child. We should seek to build up the connections in our extended family with grandparents and siblings and aunts and uncles and cousins. These are precious relationships that can provide some much-needed stability for us in a world that's built on sinking and shifting sands. Amen? But what about the importance of the communal family of faith? You know, for a lot of people in our highly mobile society, parents, grandparents, siblings, cousins, they can be hours and hours away. More than ever, we need to cherish and promote the spiritual family of God as an extended family that includes the nuclear family, but also recognizes the value of adopted grandparents in the church. The value of coming alongside single parents. People who are widowed and unmarried and being family for them. I know my family is blessed with strong family connections both in Tennessee and in Texas. But listen, those are hours and hours away. And we have also discovered the value of those adopted grandparents. Those adopted aunts and uncles for Abby. The, 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 the friends that we have in this church that are like brothers and sisters to us. That's what the church should be. That's what more and more people in our society need the church to be. The church as the family of God, I believe, will be our best resource for countering the growing threat of secular values. Which is why, which is why when Jesus raises this question, who are my mother and brothers? Or when Jesus says in Luke 14, 26, that if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Jesus isn't denying the love and value of the natural family. Rather, He is saying something significant about the value and the eternal significance of our spiritual family. He's not downplaying one. He is, by contrast, elevating the other. As the Son of Man and Son of God, Jesus identifies His family with those He's come to serve. And when we obey Jesus' great commission, listen, we will produce more spiritual offspring for the family of God than we have blood relatives. That's what Jesus means when He says, whosoever does the will of my Father is my brother and my sister and my mother. The family of God has so much to offer us today. One commentary describes the family of God as a network of relationships created by common obedience to the will of God melted together by love at each intersection and motivated by a ministry of service. That is Jesus' idea of family. It can and hopefully does include our biological families, our nuclear and extended families, but it's more than that. Listen, you can have blood relatives that reject Jesus. 
And they may actually try to dissuade you from following Jesus. They may shake their head and say, why do you go to church? Why do you give your money to that church? Why do you waste your time praying? We can have blood relatives that actually try to discourage us from living faithfully, obediently, and sacrificially to serve God. I've known people whose, whose family really tried to dissuade them from answering a call to missions or ministry. Our blood relatives can reject the gospel and even give themselves over to the enemy and his ways. In every way but blood, they can be as least related to us as possible. But our family of faith, no matter our background, no matter our connections with each other, our family of faith are the ones who share with us, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, one body and one spirit. We're called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Jesus came to create a new covenant community in which we can live together. We're like a a new family of faith that we can love one another and be there for each other, even in ways that our literal families cannot be. But third, the third new wineskin that Jesus came to give us, He came to be our new King and to usher in a new kingdom in which we can serve. Let's get back up to verse 22. Again, remember, in between these two stories about Jesus' associate and family trying to lay claim to Jesus as if they could control Jesus, trying to dissuade Jesus from obeying the Father and ministering in ways they just don't understand, these stories sandwich this next account where it's Jesus' enemies, the Pharisees, who fail to understand who Jesus is and what He came to do. And so it says in verse 22, the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem, said, He's possessed by Beelzebub. It's another name for Satan. By the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? Hmm? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. So not only do the Pharisees fail to understand, they take it one step too far. They actually blaspheme the Holy Spirit in their efforts to malign Jesus' reputation and smear His good name. Yeah, Jesus' friends are worried that He's demented, but the Pharisees accuse Him of being demonic. They basically accuse Him of selling His soul to the devil. It's no wonder Jesus accuses them of, of blasphemy, which is committing a sin that is unforgivable. This is the often misunderstood, unpardonable sin. What does it mean to be guilty of an eternal sin? Let's think about that for a moment. The the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, Jesus is the one he's talking to when he says this. Keep that in mind. It's religious people. People who claim to have studied the Old Testament. They claim to have superior knowledge of God. And Jesus is saying, if that's true, why have you not recognized me for who I am? Jesus says similar things elsewhere in the Gospels. If this were true, if they really were so close to God and so holy, instead of plotting to kill Jesus, they should have been leading people to Jesus. 
And instead, whenever they encounter His power and authority, His love and and compassion, they become increasingly rebellious against it. They denied His authority to forgive sins. They reject His message of the good news of the kingdom. They conspire to take His life. One scholar said it this way, When a man so steals his heart against God's love, there can be no hope for him. For only to a broken and repentant heart can forgiveness come. And the Pharisees had chosen a path away from having a broken and repentant heart. That's why Jesus speaks to them so harshly. Their sin was eternal because they refused to accept the only solution for their sins to trust in the saving work of Christ. Instead, they completely reject God's salvation and actually attribute God's work to the devil. Now, if this idea of the unpardonable sin worries you, and I know people, that they just kind of obsess over this. They worry about this. Have I committed the unpardonable sin? Listen to what J.C. Riley says. There is such a thing as a sin which is never forgiven, but those who are troubled by it are most unlikely to have committed it. On the other hand, those who actually do commit the sin are so dominated by evil that it is unlikely they would be aware of it. See, the truth is the unforgivable sin is not an individual act. It's a settled state of the soul. It is a lifetime of of repeated and willful choices to sin. It's not that God so much refuses to forgive the sinner in this case, but that that sinner refuses to come in humble repentance and confession to receive the forgiveness from God. The unforgivable nature of it isn't from God's part, it's from our part. Such sinners utterly and eternally reject Jesus as their king. They refuse to enter His kingdom as citizens. So Jesus counters this blasphemous claim from the Pharisees with two brief parables where really Jesus is explaining the nature of His rule and reign as king. He says it's impossible for Him to be in collusion with Satan because He actually came to destroy Satan. Why would Satan work to destroy His own works? Jesus says that's illogical. Rather, Jesus says, I'm stronger than Satan. If you're going to rob a strong man's house, you tie him up and then you plunder it. Jesus has come to plunder people from Satan's house. He's come to rescue us and to set us free. He is more powerful than the devil. And the teachers of the law should have known this. They should have had the spiritual discernment to recognize something so obvious, but they've willingly blinded themselves to the truth that their king has come among them and they have rejected his authority in their lives. They have rejected their king. They've opted to live in their own kingdom, not his kingdom. They've turned away the new wineskin and said, we're going to keep the old wine and the old wineskin for ourselves. What about you? How will you respond today to Jesus' claim over your life, over this world as king? Will you submit to his authority? Become a citizen of his kingdom? Or will you reject his authority? You see, that's the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is rejecting the free gift of salvation Jesus has given you, refusing to submit yourself to him as King and Lord of your life. Unless you submit to Jesus as King of your heart, you will spend eternity separated from God in hell. That's the course you choose for yourself. You know, our cancel culture today has a lot of unpardonable sins. 
right? I mean, it seems like you can say and do all kinds of things today. And it's like the rules change every day. The goalposts keep moving every day. But if you say the wrong thing, you do the wrong thing, you cross the wrong person, that's it. You're fired. You're canceled. You're obliterated. We ride you out on a rail. There's a lot of things in our society that it considers unpardonable. But guess what? God only has one. There's only one sin God says is unforgivable. And that's the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. Jesus' associates thought he was crazy. His enemies thought that he was demon-possessed. But the truth is that Jesus was and is the Christ, the Son of God. And each one of us must decide for ourselves who is Jesus. He was either demented, demon-possessed, or deity. Who have you decided Jesus is for you? What have you done with Christ? I invite you today, I beg you today, to choose to believe that Jesus is who He claimed to be. His Spirit, maybe right now, is speaking to you. He's working in your heart. He is wooing you and calling you to come and respond to Him. The unforgivable sin is rejecting that calling and saying, no, Jesus, I'm going to live my life my way. No, Jesus, I can be good enough on my own. That's what is unforgivable. But if you will come today, and if you'll come in humble repentance and confession and say, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that you were displeased with me. I know I deserve death and eternal separation from you. But I also believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who loved me so much that He took my sins upon Him on the cross. And so I throw myself at Your mercy, Jesus. Forgive me and save me, a wretched sinner. Make me new and clean and be the King of my heart. If you've never come to Christ in that kind of humility and trust, I invite you to do that today, right now, as we get ready to stand and sing. Let today be the day that you cross over from death to life from being uh, in dominion of darkness to Satan to becoming a citizen in the kingdom of the Son that God loves. Would you do that today? Maybe for you, you're a follower of Jesus. And you've been worshiping with us. And your heart resonates with First Baptist Thompson. And we are so excited about that. Maybe God is speaking to your heart today saying, you know what, I want you to join this family of faith. I want you to be a member of this body. I want to place you as a stone in this spiritual house. Maybe God is calling you to join this covenant community to serve Him here. We would love to welcome you and to receive you as such. To the rest of us, I only ask this. Are you committed to this covenant community? Or has it only become about convenience? Are you surrendered to Christ to love this family of faith, warts and all? Listen, we're, we're all of us like these disciples, aren't we? In one way or another, we're all a mess. While we need the grace of God. None of us are perfect. If you ever find a perfect church, don't join it because it won't be perfect anymore. Because you're there. Are you surrendered to Christ as your king? Are you serving his kingdom? Whatever God has spoken to your heart today, I'll be waiting here to receive you, to pray with you. Let's stand together and pray. Father... We thank you so much for the new wine of your Holy Spirit. A newness of life. A newness of joy and celebration of peace and wholeness. That is the new wine that Christ has come to give us. And Father, we need to turn and reject the old ways of our lives and of the world and and of trying to get it right through religion. Father, we need the new wineskins of a covenant community. 
It's not about us. It's about you. You create that covenant with us. A new family of faith. And and like all of our families, we, we love each other in spite of our faults and our failings. That's what family does. But we're there for each other. We support one another and we care for each other. And when needed, we call each other out. Father, we need your Son to rule in our hearts as our King. And we long to be part of your new kingdom that's coming. Father, whatever you're speaking to our hearts today, I pray that we would not reject or resist, but would faithfully submit to you right now. In the name of Christ, our living Lord.